Hi, I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans. 30% of Americans who are planning home improvements of $5,000 or more will pay for those renovations with a high-interest credit card. That may not be a great idea. A better idea may be to take cash out of your home with a Quicken Loans 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. The rate today on our 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is 4.125%. APR, 4.22%. Call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. Rate subject to change. 8.88% fee to receive this discounted rate. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 3030. Welcome to The Masogi Method with work happiness expert Jody B. Miller. Each week, Jody introduces you to amazing people who have broken through huge barriers to achieve meaning, success, and happiness in their lives. For every one of us, the path to lasting joy has always been there, but it may take a masogi to get you on it. Jody did it, her guest did it, and now you can too. Here's your host, Jody B. Miller. Welcome everyone to the Masogi Method. I'm your host, Jody Miller, and I am so excited about our guest today, Dr. Rory Wilson, who's the chair of aquatic biology at Swansea University in the UK. Dr. Wilson is amazing. He is going to talk with us today about accessing or a unique way of accessing animal lifestyle secrets. And Dr. Wilson and I met, if you recall, about a year and a half ago, right, on a plane, and we were on our way from California to London, and we were chatting, and I asked you what you did, and you told me you invented the tracking devices for whale sharks and other animals. Indeed, yeah. And that your team was going to be in the Maldives the following week, and I told you, if you recall, I too was going to be in the Maldives the next week. And so that sent shivers down my spine because one of the big reaches, the one Masogi that I had last year was to swim with a whale shark. And as we know, those are pretty elusive creatures, right? They're pretty hard to find. They definitely can be, that's for sure. So when you said that to me, I just knew without a doubt that we would find a whale shark when we were there. And As the trip went on, a bunch of us were on a boat. Um, It was like the second to last day, but I still felt very confident. And sure enough, the captain of the boat found a whale shark, and we snorkeled with this whale shark for about a half an hour. So let's turn to you and how you got started with this interest, well, A, in aquatic biology, and then how you came up with this invention that is now tracking not only whale sharks, but other animals in the world. Well, it's great to be here and great to talk to you again. And I'm really, really pleased that you managed to see a whale shark because it's, uh, as you say, it's not necessarily easy. The biggest fish in the sea has also got a big place to hide. So, you know, it can be quite challenging. And of course, I should just say uh, that the first time I had anything to do with a whale shark was when a whale shark researcher called Brad Norman said, well, you must come down and use some of your technology in our whale sharks. And it was in Ningaloo Reef in Australia. And we jumped in the water ahead of a shark, which was spotted by a spotter plane. He said to me, Rory, don't look down. Hmm. Because they swim close to the surface, as, as you will have found in, in your trip. You know, when you see something as big as a bus coming towards you, a, a fish that size, it's quite hard not to hyperventilate into your snorkel. <laughs> yes. um, and, you know, it is extraordinary and you have to keep telling yourself these fish only eat plankton and I'm not swimming like a plankton Um, (laughs) but of course it's such a weird thing that these animals are so big and so obvious when you're next to them and yet we know now that they dive to a mile deep underwater they can spend long periods well you know at great depth 
And much of their life, including, for example, where they give birth, where they mate and, and so on, that's all hidden from us. And so whale sharks, they're typical examples of one of many, many animals that have a secret life that's hidden from us because of their habits, because of the places they live, because, although this is not particularly the case in whale sharks, that they might avoid people or they're nocturnal or whatever. And the question is how we find out that information and how important it is, particularly if these animals are in sort of a conservation problem, because obviously the situation can get worse if we don't know anything about them, then how are we supposed to alleviate it? How many whale sharks have you been able to find around the world and put your tracking device on? Well, I work with whale sharks with Brad Norman uh, primarily. And, And as I say, he's an Australian and he's devoted his life to studying them. And so between Brad and myself, well, Brad's always working with whale sharks. I dip in and out because we use our tags on lots of different animals, on sloths and cheetahs and condors and penguins and what have you, with the simple aim in whatever the case is of finding out more pivotal information that's going to help us generally conserve them, but also just tell us more about the way they live. And so in the course of the time I've been working with Brad, we've tagged a few dozen whale sharks. And Actually, the interesting thing about the first tagging of the whale shark that we had, which was in, I think, 2006 or 2007, something like that, I can remember, you're faced with this problem of a shark that's a, or an animal that's a really big animal, you can't restrain it, it's just free swimming, and you have, you're faced with the problem of how you even put a tag on a whale shark, you're not going to bring it out onto the boat. And, right. <laughs> and so Brad said, well, we're going to have to tag it as it swims past us. And that means we do it on the fly. So we snorkel, swim alongside it, and then have a clip mechanism that goes clip and clips it onto the fin. Uh, and I hope that works. But then you've got to do all the research into what should the clip be like, how long is it going to stay on. Our system that we use is one that measures a huge amount of information. In fact, 400 data points a second, typically, wow. um, of any of these animals. And tells us about depth and speed and heading and the energy they use to swim and all these sorts of things. Um, it's a little miniature computer, but then we don't get the information unless we get the tag back. And so you're faced with this real problem of an animal that dips in and out of being visible and invisible, because even whale sharks, as you know now, you can swim with them for half an hour and they'll be swimming along near the surface. And then they'll suddenly decide, okay, I've had enough here and they'll dive. That is exactly what happened. After about a half an hour, and I literally almost touched it, I have beautiful, beautiful pictures. They had a professional photographer that was diving down and taking photos from all angles. So I will send those to you because I think you'll really appreciate them. But all of a sudden, he just slowly said, see you later, and was gone in less than a minute. And that's what they do. They have these dives, they just disappear. And so when we put this tag on, we had a couple of mechanisms of of getting it off. One was a sort of two-day release where it counted down two days and then popped off. Um, And of course, you don't know how long a whale shark's going to be around that area. Uh, The idea is it would pop off and then it would transmit its position to us. It wouldn't transmit the data, just this is where I am. And so we'd pick it up and then we'd get the information from the tag. And the other option we had was a manual release where you could go to it and pull a little cord and then it would pop off. And it seems really strange to think back to that first deployment when we put it on and the whale shark swam around for a while and then it suddenly, as you saw, they they sort of glide down and down and down. They're like aeroplanes in the water, really, and just mm-hmm. disappeared into the into the depths. And we, we knew roughly where it was because it had an acoustic pinger on it, which we could track. So we were sort of 
in an inflatable boat in the area and then following it around and waiting for something to happen, knowing we were recording information on that animal, but knowing that none of that information would be accessible to us unless we got the tag back. Interesting. Um, and, and then it popped back up again and we saw it again. And Brad said to me, Rory, what do we do? What do we do? And I said, Brad, take it off. Because, <laughs> um, it's 34 minutes. That's what actually what it was, 34 minutes of recording. And he said, but it's only 34 minutes, Rory. And I said, yeah, but 34 minutes against no information previously is still a lot of information. And so we took that first tag off after 34 minutes, which was extraordinary because it told us everything that the shark had done while it was out of our sight. So so what sorts of things do they do? I have so many questions about whale sharks, but what what do you discover in the data? From that shark, for example, what went from subsequent sharks, one thing we discovered is that sharks are like aeroplanes. And what the whale shark does is it's swimming in water that's much denser than air. But effectively, what it can do, if it wishes to travel, and it's traveling to find food, and it wishes to travel in a way that's extremely efficient energetically, what they do is they swim a bit at the surface, and then they just stop swimming and they slowly drift down deeper and deeper because they're denser than water. But as they drift down, they're gliding along at the same time. It's like a radio-controlled glider that's just getting slowly deeper and deeper. But because it's gliding and because it stopped its tail movement, then it's saving a lot of energy. And then it goes down to a particular depth. And then out of sight of us, it was down to about 80 meters. And then it started this sort of strange powering up a little bit and then gliding down and powering up a little bit and gliding down. And in fact, we've done some calculations on this and it it transpires that in a very big animal way, it was doing exactly the same as these small garden birds do in your back garden. You know, these birds that when they fly, they power a bit and they go up and then they sort of close their wings and they go down and then they go up and down and up and down, making sort of little waves in the air. And one of the first things that came out of this was that this huge shark was playing the same energy-saving game as a small garden bird. Oh, um, that's amazing. So, yeah, you can't get that information, even if you're scuba diving, if you're snorkeling, because those undulations are taking the animal along quite fast, and they're 5 or 10 meters, you know, 15 or 15 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet in depth differences. So it's, the, it's the, that sort of thing you can only get out of using this technology. So I've always wondered how often do they breathe? Well, they don't breathe at all. Mm. Um, they're, they're fish. So uh, whale They don't shark, have to rise to the surface? And- no, they don't. And it's interesting. They don't need air to breathe. They water breathe just like other fish. So they have water going through their gills. They're called whale sharks, but they're sharks and not whales. And they're called whale sharks because they're so big. That's you know, the confusing part. Exactly. <laughs> are they a whale or a shark? Yeah, I'm just pleased there's not an animal called a shark whale. <laughs> that would, really that would be scary. Yeah, so whale sharks are fish. Um, and the interesting thing about them is that it's a problem we've not entirely solved. Is There are some theories about it. Is they do spend a lot of time near the surface of the water, about six feet under or four feet under, which is sort of what it would have been doing when you were looking at it, I guess. Yes. Up in, the, in the shallow areas... Um, for a length of time, and then they'll dive again, and they'll be doing this bouncing up and down at different depths, much deeper down, and then they'll come back to the surface. And there's a number of theories about them. One of, one of them is that what they're doing at the surface is they're heating their bodies up because they're cold-blooded, and effectively they're close to the surface of the water where the surface of the water is warmer, so the warmth in the water goes through into their body. And then they can go down into the colder waters, and because they're warm, 
they can still perform perfectly adequately. And when it gets too cold for them, then they come back up. So um, I wonder, do you find them most in very warm climates then? Yes. Oh, yeah. No, they're warm climate sharks. You don't find them in cold water within the climate. Although, of course, as I said, some of them do go down to a kilometre underwater and it's very cold there. And, and it's a bit of a mystery what's going on. Mm-hmm. Do they have any natural predators? Well, I have seen whale sharks with strange bites out of them. And these are reputedly caused by what they call cookie cutter sharks, which are sharks that go and take a big bite out of things like whale sharks. And to get that bite out of them, they take a bite, then they spin the whole body and and it makes a sort of very weird, slightly circular bite out of their body. And I've certainly seen that happen. And I think killer whales might take them occasionally. But their back, the skin on their back is really thick. It's inches thick and it's actually quite a difficult thing to get through. So really, and because of their size, they don't seem to have enemies of the normal type. That's good. They're such beautiful creatures. Docile too. Um, How far do they travel in a year? Have you been able to track them that long? That's a very good question. Um, Brad Norman has tracked them sort of from Ningaloo Reef um, up into Malaysia and back. One of the big questions that's interesting people at the moment is how far can they travel? You know, the world's a big place when you travel by oceans. You can get almost anywhere. It seems as if they stay in a fairly localised area. When I say localised, I mean hundreds or even thousands of kilometres rather than being true globetrotters. Having said that, there is evidence that there are sharks, the odd shark that moves between these accumulations of sharks. So you might get one that occurs off north of Madagascar and that might go over the ocean to the other side sort of thing. But we know so little about it. It's quite clear, though, that they're capable of very long distance movements. Have you ever been able to understand their mating? No, absolutely not. And that's one of the big questions. I went out with Brad and a couple of other people to the Galapagos Islands. In beautiful, an attempt. beautiful place. Yeah, lovely place. And the idea was, were we going to tag some of the very big females you get off Darwin and Wolf Island? to see if we could pick out pupping or mating behavior. And they're very big and they look pregnant. But oh, really, wow. there's almost no information on that. And, and the stage we're at at the moment is thinking somewhere, maybe around the Galapagos, there may be a pupping site. But, you know, small whale sharks just aren't found. So it's one of those huge mysteries from the world's largest fish. Yeah, I wonder if they keep them deep until they're ready or something. Well, it may be, and and they may not, you know, the pups, I mean, I don't suppose there's much indication that they'll be looked after by their parents, but they're hiding them somewhere. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen a whale shark travel with a pup or you've just never seen the pups? No, you never see the pups. There was, I think there's a, there's a case of, of a whale shark that was, caught by a fleet and was full of pups and they were I don't know, 50 centimeters long or so and there was one pup I think found once but basically they're never seen. That's really interesting I'd be so curious about that. What about for those that are listening that are concerned about technology interfering with the natural course of life what is the effect of the tracking devices on the whale sharks and then you can even expand on the condors or the or the african hunting dogs or all these other creatures that you tag have you noticed a positive or negative effect or change in behavior because of the devices i think it's uh, that's a very good and it's one of the most pertinent questions we always have to ask technology in itself is an extremely powerful thing but a technology that you put on an animal that compromises it unreasonably 
then is not helpful. It's not helpful because the data that you get, data from an animal that's not behaving normally, and it's not helpful because of the animal welfare aspect, and no one wants an animal to be affected in that way. And there are a huge, one of the biggest issues we have is how do we, with whale sharks or with condors or whatever we, we're putting the tags on, how do we put these systems on with minimum detriment? I like to think that we can get to a stage whereby the tag tags we put on animals affect these wild animals no more than their natural parasites would. That's the sort of thing I have in my in my mind's eye. So if you look at a lot of animals in the wild, if you look at whale sharks, I wouldn't describe remoras as parasites. I don't know when you were swimming with them, whether you saw any of these fish that were sticking to them. Not this one, just lots of the dots, you know, the the dots on top. Mm -hmm. Okay. For example, whale sharks can be sometimes surrounded by quite large numbers of remoras. And this is a fish with a thing on the top of its head which it sticks onto the, uses to stick onto the whale shark and it hitches a ride uh, <laughs> and feeds on things that get disturbed by the passage of the whale shark. And in one sense, because it's not taking lumps out of the whale shark, it's not a problem for the whale shark. But in the other sense, if it's an external body sticking on a whale shark, then it will increase the drag of the whale shark and the whale shark's obviously going to have to use more power, more energy to swim along. And as I say, whale sharks can have quite a few of these remoras. And, and that's an example of whale sharks, but birds with parasites, external parasites or internal parasites or other animals, it's quite normal. It is probably the norm that animals do have parasites. And so parasites we know do have a cost on animals. But I like to think that the tags that we put on, I don't think you'll ever put a tag on an animal without having some cost because obviously they're taking around extra weight or pushing extra drag through the water or through the air. But I like to think we get it to a stage that it's so small that it's effectively negligible. But there's a lot of work that goes into this. And an example of this is right now, I've got a PhD student here, Lloyd Hopkins, and he spent the last two months designing a system for putting our tags on sharks in a way that is better for the sharks and certainly more efficient. And so he has the tag itself and that's reduced to the minimum size. And then there's the mechanism by which the tag is clipped onto the fin. And that has to be something that's really soft and gentle. And then something that doesn't have any pressure or minimal pressure on the fin, but will stay on even if the shark swims quite fast. And, and that involves him going into computers, using simulations of water flows over sharks, scanning shark fins. There's a whole game associated with it. And the whole point is to end up with a system that is as comfortable as it possibly can be for the animal that's wearing it. And so you have that on the one side. And on the other side, you have what is it the animal gains from this technology put, being put on it. And humans are, well, we're everywhere. Uh, we mess up a lot of things. And yes. I'm afraid to say that whilst I'm, of course, curious about a, a lot of, of animal lives and the way they move and what they do and all the rest of it, but we have impacted the planet so substantially that we're no longer in a stage, I don't believe, I, we're no longer in a stage where we can just let species go extinct or just leave them on their own not touch them not think about them uh, and say well you know let's not mess as researchers let's not mess with them and they'll have a better life as a result of it because we've pushed too many too far for that to be realistic and so there are animal populations that are decreasing all the time and it is very necessary not just for the animals but for the systems in which they live 
to be able to find out what's going on and seeing what we have to do to try and get some of the natural system working again. So the plus side of the technology for the animals themselves is finding out what it is that makes them tick, the environment they live in, and where they're pulling a short straw and therefore how we can maybe help them. So in doing that, do you have some sort of mission or a calling or something that you proclaim that needs to change based on some valuable information that you've obtained from this tagging? Well, I've, it's, it's a really interesting because I hold the concept of conservation very high. But I also know that there's a lot of organizations out there that are with the best will in the world wanting to do conservation, but are not making much of a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that's true of quite a lot of the stuff I do or that I underpin. And there are times when I think, how helpful is this? And then there are other times when I think, I'm really glad we did that because suddenly we have an answer to something that we need. And, you know, I had an example of that earlier this year when I was looking at the rate at which Magellanic penguins were catching fish in Argentina and using technology, tag technology, to find this out. And I came to the conclusion, well, this is the normal situation. There's no fishing going on. The population's fine. Everything's good. And I felt sort of satisfied to know this is the norm. Uh And then someone said to me, well, Rory, you know, you did your PhD on another penguin, which is really similar, the African penguin, and the population's been crashing for decades now. And so how does that tie in? And I was able to go back then to the African penguin and, and look at the rate at which they are catching fish and compare it to the Magellanic penguin and suddenly find there were huge deficiencies. But only because of the work that had been done in this research sense were we able to then put our finger on it and say that's what the problem is with the African penguin. Now between defining that it's a problem of effectively fish shortage and the numbers that encounter per unit time and all the rest of it and then getting organizations that are responsible for this to then say okay we're going to stop fishing here here and here or within these seasons that's another step and of course for me that's best in the hands of conservation bodies that can push this sort of agenda. I think my time is best spent trying to define exactly what it is that's underpinning things like population declines. Yeah, I think that's so valuable. How can people help? What would be your message to our listeners about ways that they can really contribute to preserving these amazing creatures like the whale sharks or the penguins or the condors and all these threatened species that we all care about that are so important to our ecosystem to be perfectly honest you know if you ask me that question and you say well how can people best help what i would say is something that's occurring more and more often is that people come to us and they say we've got this problem we've got this animal we need to know more about it how can your tags help us and very obviously these tags can help to, to a huge extent because they uncover the secret lives of animals. So you can find out how hard animals are working to survive, what things are compromising the way they survive. And all this stuff comes up. It's almost like having a video camera on your animal. And so people come to us from all over the world and they say, um, we'd like to know about this. And for the most part, I say, well, that's a lovely idea. Who's going to fund it? Mm. <laughs> uh, what, I would, what I dream of is having a system whereby there would be a pot of money And people would come to us and say, we want to know, as happened actually this morning with someone talking about a pipefish, a very rare pipefish in South Africa and saying, we need to know, can we get technology on these pipefish? So 
there would be a pot of money so people could come to us and say, we need to know this. And then we could say, all right, because we have this pot of money or effectively a pot of tags, which has been paid for, we could set them up, send them to you, send the software to you that you need to know to, to, to understand, to analyze your data. And then the information that you want, you can get out. And so all of these people could have that problem solved for them. Uh, at, the moment, it, at the moment, we're sort of elitist because uh, we've got great engineers here that design the tags and they're getting smaller and better and more powerful and they do incredible things. But the world is a big place and there are a lot of animals in need of this. And my dream is actually to be able to facilitate exactly that because that would be a conservation slam dunk but for these animals because then, then we could just say, okay, we'll help you because we've been given the capacity to help. Yes, and you have the information. Do you have any sort of a foundation that's set up where people can contribute to that? Do you know, Jody? we don't, but we should really be thinking about it because that is exactly what we need. You mm -hmm. know, the Diary Foundation or something. We call our tag the Daily Diary. In all oh, I like that. Uh, and it's because it's an animal diary. It's written by the animal. It's a diary that never turns off. It does it works 24-7 for the time that's needed. And yes, that's what we should be doing, a Daily Diary Foundation. So people could just say, I really believe in this and we'd like to contribute. Well, maybe one of your PhD candidates can create the foundation. Yeah. <laughs> that's a thought. So Dr. Wilson, Rory, you know, you and I know each other, so if it's okay, I just like to go by Rory. Yeah, um, go by Rory. <laughs> yes. And how can people find more of your research to follow you? Well, I, what you're doing. If you put, to be honest, if you put Rory Wilson into the into Google, quite a lot of stuff that I do comes up. You can put Rory Wilson and then Rolex in as a key search because Rolex backed Rolex, the watch people backed the first iteration of our daily diary tag. Oh, and that, wonderful! And that was huge for me because actually it's difficult for scientists sometimes to get money for ideas. And that was an idea I had, and Relic said, we believe in you, we will back that. And as a result of that, this tag has come to existence. And as we've used it on, I don't know, 70, 80 different species of animals since then. This was since 2006. So we're using it all the time. If you go onto Google Scholar, just type Scholar in, and then put Rory Wilson and then Daily Diary or something, then all my publications will come up so you can see those. But also the stuff on YouTube, again, with the search term Rory Wilson and or Rolex or animals or stuff like that there's there is stuff coming i don't have a twitter account but that's because well, you're so behind the times no i'm, I'm kidding <laughs> no but i just i know maybe you're I should, busy i'm so busy i'm so busy <laughs> that's the thing yeah. I understand. Well, I am so impressed. I'm so inspired. I think people that are listening that really believe in saving so many species around the world and conserving them and making sure they don't go extinct are going to be so inspired and motivated to help. And I'm so grateful that you came on the Masogi Method show. And I can see your Masogi, in my opinion, would be to get that foundation created, which is the whole idea of a Masogi is it has to have a 50% or greater chance of failure. So for you to even get Rolex to underwrite your first big tagging iteration, that's huge. And so it might come to where you're going to have many more sponsors or just large foundations contributing to your foundation. And you're just doing amazing things. So I'm going to think really good thoughts for you. And another part of a Masogi, Rory, is that you commit to it and you know it in your soul that this is what you're supposed to do. So whether it's the foundation, whether it's 
getting more awareness, you, you will know it by just really listening to yourself and then committing to it and surrounding yourself with people that are on your team or in your tribe. And then you'll just start to see that inspired action. Like when you and I met on the plane and I knew without a doubt, I would swim with a whale shark and I did. And that's pretty amazing because who would have known that this plane spotted a whale shark? Yeah. And so that's the whole idea behind a Masogi. So I'm going to be re- thinking really good thoughts for you, spreading the word through this show. This will be going out globally and we'll be on here forever on iTunes, on Spotify, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, just across the world. So your message will be getting out there all the time. You know, for those people who believe in conservation, putting your finger on it and saying, yes, create a daily diary foundation. For those people who believe in conservation, what can be more compelling than wanting to set up a foundation that allows you to give an animal a diary and then to say to that animal effectively, tell us the secrets of your success and failures so that we can help you. Oh, people could sponsor the diaries. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I may be your first one. Well, there we go. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rory, for being part of the show. I'm just so inspired right now. I don't think I'm going to go swim with a great white. But <laughs> have many shows if you do that. <laughs> exactly. In fact, where I am right now in Santa Barbara, there are many off the coast, and I've seen them taking pictures of their fins about fifty yards off the yeah. coast. It's amazing. But seeing a whale shark that was so transformational for me. It completely changed me and made me really want to invest my efforts in conservation, the ocean, not just the ocean, but animals everywhere that are potentially going extinct and I love that you are learning every day more and more and you're taking it at a very careful pace in a very considerate way so you're not harming the animals which is really key too critical yeah Yeah, yes so thank you again for being on the show and I look forward to staying in touch and I will send you those photos of the amazing whale shark we saw in the Maldives Thanks very much, and thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me on the Masogi Method podcast. I'm Jody Miller, your host. Thank you to Dr. Rory Wilson for being one of our very valued guests. And if you are really caring about the ocean, conservation, saving endangered species, please look up Dr. Rory Wilson and help him in his quest to save so many animals around the world. Thank you again, and we'll see you soon. Right now, you can get both Sprint's unlimited plan and the all-new Samsung Galaxy S10 included for just $35 per month per line for five lines. All you need is approved credit and an 18-month lease. No trade-in required. Visit a Sprint store, Sprint.com, or call 800-SPRINT-1. Phone $15 a month after $22.50 a month credit. Apply within two bills. If canceled earlier, your main balance due and limited basic after $630.20. Pay $32 per month per line for five lines with auto-pay data deprioritization during congestion, speed maximums, use rules, and restrictions apply. Let's read another. Every child needs to read, but 60% of U.S. children in poverty don't have a children's book in their home. This summer, you and your kids can help change that with Save the Children's 100 Days of Reading Challenge. See how at savethechildren.org read. Once upon a time, a little girl wanted to become an animal doctor. Save the Children. Changing a life lasts a lifetime.